Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. I also have to let you know that our latest volume of Elrond Hubbard Presents Writers of the Future is now available in bookstores throughout the US, Canada, the UK, South Africa, and Australia, as well as through all major online retailers. It contains the 12 winning authors and 12 winning illustrators selected by some of your favorite names in science fiction and fantasy. You've heard me talking about it for almost four years on this podcast, and so you should know by now what I'm talking about. This week, I'm doing several interviews at the Writers and Illustrators of the Future Volume 39 Workshop Week and Awards event, and I'm very excited to have a very special friend. She's an editor. I was introduced to her via Mike Resnick several years ago. Leslie Robin has been a guest on the show, I guess about two years ago. Like I said, she's an editor. She's the editor of Galaxy's Edge magazine and assistant publisher at Arc Manor. She's a published author, Australian author, which you will rapidly find out as soon as she begins speaking. So welcome back, Leslie. <laughs> Hello. Welcome, everyone. So, um, yeah, we've done this before, but mm -hmm. I guess yours is, is, a, is a great story of mm -hmm. how you... I mean, you've always been had a strong affinity for writing and for reading, but how you actually made it into the science fiction community and um, just that journey, is, I think, is, is very, very special. And it's also very special to the person that made that possible, which is ultimately what we try to do with writers and illustrators of the future as per the original you know, legacy as created by Elwin Hubbard. So please enlighten me. So my career started in an unorthodox way and a lot of authors will find there's no blueprints to getting their career started. There's no cheat guide. There's, there, there is uh, examples out there and there's also lists of if you do X, Y, Z, you know, you should start your career. But a lot of the major authors that you even know had a very unorthodox start to their career. So I met one of the previous um, judges on Writers of the Future, Mike Resnick, on eBay. I was buying a book, uh, Anne McCaffrey book. I wanted a signed limited edition book of hers and he happened to be selling it. Now, of course, uh, if anyone's brought off eBay, you don't know the sellers. They they're not under their own name. It's like a little business name. And so I had no idea he was this award-winning author. I just wanted this book. And originally I missed the original, like the ending bid time. And I just missed it by a minute. Like my computer froze, whatever it was, I missed it. I didn't get the book, but no one else did either. So I thought, oh, he probably relist it next week. He never relisted it. And I found out he cycles the books. If they don't sell one week, he just waits a few months. So I contacted him directly and said, I would love this book. I see you haven't relisted it. I promise you, if you relist it, I will buy it. I just did the stupid thing and missed the first bid time. And so he said, how about I sell it to you directly then? We can avoid eBay fees. And so I said, that's brilliant. The book arrived and not only was it like packed beautifully, I found out his wife, Carol, used to do all the packing. 
But in it, which he didn't quite realise she did, he, she put flyers in for his, like, works. So I, I was like, oh, Mike Resnick, oh, that's interesting, like, books by Mike Resnick, okay. And didn't think much of it, but I sent an email to the seller saying, I really appreciate that you were selling a rare book for a really good price, like it was not expensive at all. So he replied back and he said, I'm an author too and I don't see my autograph being worth extra. Like I don't see why that should cost people extra. I'm willing to sign books for anyone. And I I find it difficult to price books higher with signatures in them simply because the author signed them because it's just alien to my nature. And he said, well, I met Anne McCaffrey back in 1963 when she made me sign up for Science Fiction Writers Association, you know, of America at the time. And so we started talking about my favourite author, one of my favourite authors, Anne McCaffrey. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm getting like an inside window. And in one of the emails, I flippantly, a bit cheekily said, oh, I haven't read any of your titles, though. Forgetting, of course, he has my address. He's already sent me books. So he sent me, he's like, and the exact line was in the email, well, we can't have that then. And he sent me his titles. He started with two books. And me being completely new and not at all knowing this is not to be done, I critiqued them, which as all authors sort of kind of groan and go, oh my gosh. So because on my side, I was like, I don't want to just say, oh my gosh, that was a great book. Thanks. Because he might just assume I was saying that and not actually read it. I wanted to prove that I was reading it. So I was talking about the ins and outs of the book. And his response wasn't really with words. It was more books. I kept having books come into my my house. And I live in Australia. So you've got to understand he was shipping these things from the US to Australia just randomly. And so I I was like, this is becoming like a full-time job critiquing his books. But I did a few more. And after a few months, he sent me a message and he said, I know I haven't said much because I've just been fascinated by your responses. We would talk a lot about other stuff, but he hadn't been saying much about what I was doing, uh, my critiques of his books. Right. And I think because he wasn't trying to get, he was wanting to see what I was doing organically. And he said to me, you're spotting things my editors never spotted. I think you have like a really good eye for this. Have you considered writing? And I said, well, of course I have. I actually sent Anne McCaffrey an email when I was six, six, 16 years old and she responded, by the way, that she was that kind of woman mm-hmm. and said, how do you, you know, the naive, how do you start in publishing? And so, of course, I want to be a writer, but I do not want you to think that I'm talking to you as like a, a way to sort of get a career yeah. out of, yeah, it was, the friendship was what was important, the friendship that was developing. And I was quite stubborn. He says he's never met someone who's quite so stubborn. I would say no all the time. So he tried another tactic. He said, how about you come to the Worldcon writers, it's a science fiction and fantasy convention that's traditionally held every year. I think the first one was in the like 1920s. Mm-hmm. And he said, how about you then just meet all your favorite authors? Like I can introduce you to them because, you know, they're like all my buddies. Um, how about you just do that? You know, cause you're a fan first, which he was always a fan first. 
And I said, sure, uh, that would be great. Like, where is it? And it was Denvention uh, in Denver, and it was in 2018. So I turn up, again, all innocent, naive me, thinking this is like the whole purpose of this convention is I can meet all my favorite authors. And what he'd done, which is one of the sweetest and still mind-boggling things for me, is he'd gone to all his author friends, all these big names, Rob Sawyer, Kevin Anderson, Larry Niven, you name it, everyone, Nancy Cress, a lot of the judges that are here now and who are my mm -hmm. friends. And he said, I really want this girl to start writing, but she, like, I've, I've got to try and find another way to do it. But let's just show her what this field can do. So he got them all to bring a book, a signed book for me. I had 40 signed books I had to ship back. But the funny thing is they were turning up everywhere. Like I had some left at my hotel. So like it's like a package for you at the desk. Like I'd never had such an avalanche of like writer love um, than in that moment. Now, one of the things that I did, at, I was innocently thinking, when is this ever going to happen to me again, going to a writer convention? I've got to make the most of it. My twin sister is also an avid science fiction and fantasy fan. Her favorite author, Lee Modisett, was there. And she did, actually gifted me some of his books on my 16th birthday. That's how much she loved him. You know, wow. when your twin gives you books, you know, you know, it's love. And he was there doing an autographing as well as other things. But I went and brought some of his books to get signed as our birthday present or a birthday present to her. And because world cons often fall on our birthday. And I waited for him and he actually had been seeing me go around with Mike Resnick and like being introduced to people. And he'd been seeing that sort of like in the periphery of while he was doing his things. And he said to me, uh, oh yeah, sure. I'll sign books for your sister. Would she also like some promotional items? And he was just super sweet about it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be like the best sister. My, my sister's going to love me. But then while he was doing this, he said, oh, let's grab a coffee and I'll sign all these things. And again, I'm thinking, dear in headlights, this is just, this is not real <laughs> life, right? <laughs> and he said, okay, I have to ask, I've been seeing you go around with Mike Resnick. I, you know, I saw that you went to the Hugo Awards. I was one of the guests, uh, plus ones, I should say, not one of the guests. What's the deal? Like, what's happening? And I said, uh, he's actually, I know he wants me to write, but I'm resistant because I don't want him to ever think that this unique and remarkable friendship is because I'm trying to get a career, you know? And he's the one that told me that Mike Resnick has writer children, that he's known for spotting talent or people he sees with potential and actually loves and thrives on helping them start their career. And so... My twin sister's favorite author uh, is the one that basically said, you should go for it. He's, you're not taking advantage. If anything, you're making him sad because you're not taking him up on his very genuine offer. And so because of Lee Modisett and Mike Resnick and Anne McCaffrey, whose book I bought, that's how I started my career. And through writing with Mike Resnick, I, I first started writing with him because he wanted to see how I could do. We did collaborations, mm -hmm. the most collaborations he did with someone because we just kept doing more because we got along so well. And then I started my solo career of, you know, my solo right. pieces. And then during that journey, 
what he first saw in me at the start where he said, I'm spotting things that the other editors don't notice. I then also became an editor. So that's why I have the multiple hats that I do. So, yeah. That's a great story. Because Mike was, Mike was calling me, said, Galaxy's Edge is available. <laughs> you know, your Galaxy Press, why don't you buy it and get right. started up again? He was trying to get me to buy it and yeah. started up and said, I, I do my not just keeping up with the rise of future. Yeah. yeah. You know, right. so I just can't do it. So then he worked out and that's when Shahed. Shahed, you got with him and then he, he bought it and got started. And Mike was the, uh, yeah. he, was, he was the finance and Mike was the, the direction and, and the mm-hmm. face of it mm-hmm. and an amazing face he had on that to, uh, mm-hmm. to provide that direction. And resurrecting a very famous magazine. Yeah, it's one of the things, the hardest things. I I took over editing Galaxy's Edge magazine after Mike passed away. And the hardest, it was also moving, but one of the hardest things was changing because under Galaxy's Edge it said edited by Mike Resnick and I had to change it to created by Mike Resnick. And it was just... That uh, it was bittersweet because mm-hmm. it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. Like it's honoring him. It's but it meant that we lost him, right. obviously, to make that change. And we've had a lot of feedback that it moved people that we kept honoring him that way. Um, you know, after he passed. Also, you, if you haven't come across Mike Resnick's work in the past, look him up. He was insanely prolific. And every issue since his passing, we published a short piece of fiction of his in the issue. So he was still in every issue. Like he might not have been editing it, but his words were still in every issue since he passed. And I think um, I know a lot of his, the fans of him that started buying the magazine because of him, Um, obviously because they also loved the fiction and that, but there was an element of the people that brought it that loved that they had like a tangible connection to him still sort of running through the magazine. Yeah, and if anybody's interested, when he passed, I created a video in memoriam Mm. uh, for Mike, which has a bunch of pictures from when he was a little kid all the way up to, you know, his senior years. And um, they'll really give you a lot of the the music that's in there. That's his favorite music. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing we tried, it's it's, it's a a total, you know, dedication to an amazing life well-lived. And right when that happened, right when he passed, is right when the pandemic started. Mm-hmm. So originally I was going to be coming as one of the, the guest speakers to Writers of the Future and going to be like you had told me about the memorial in that beautiful yeah. video. And so it was going to be one of the events that I knew I'd probably ball all the way through, but it, it felt like such a good thing that you did that. Now the great thing about the video and that is you could still – obviously play it, everyone could see it and all of this. But it was so bittersweet that, you know, I couldn't go to the (laughs) the event and see it at the event. And in a way I I do feel relief that Mike didn't see the pandemic world because at the start how scary it was for everyone that he he did miss that because of the timing of his passing. But it was only within a month that it got declared. So, yeah, uh, his end days were filled with a lot of love from the science fiction and fantasy field because I created a fundraiser for him and his widow. Mm-hmm. And so the outpouring of love 
from the field was the one of the last things that he obviously witnessed before he passed away. So. Yeah, and then last month I was on the phone with him talking about more projects that could be done, and mm-hmm. you know, it was just mm-hmm. um, he he never ever was would say he was terminal, even though his family knew, and it's not like he didn't know. But he was that type of person, no, I've still got time. I've still got time. I've, I'm still living. I'm not dying. And that was very uh, sort of important to note about him, that he never told anyone, I'm dying. No. Yeah. No, he was just, and I was just, for myself, talking to him, just I'll, I'll run with his lead on yes. that one there. Yes, exactly. The same thing with Dave Farland when, when you know, I was on both him on the phone with him two days before he passed about you know the next mm-hmm. the next year of Rise of the Future oh, and he was going to be doing a, an online Zoom event for all the different people and we were talking. He said, "Can we push it back? I'm you know I'm not going to be quite ready for it yet, so let's push it back a few weeks and then mm-hmm. I'll, I'll do it." You know, mm-hmm. just like totally creating that stuff there. Mm-hmm. I called him at one point and uh, he picked up the phone and says, "Hello, John." I said, "Hey, Dave, where are you?" I said, I'm in ICU. I said, what? <gasps> yeah, I said, well, I saw a call from John Goodman. I had to take it. And I said, Aww. Dave, you know, yeah. I want you to get better, you know. Yeah, so, right. But that's what, you know, for them, it was just the whole thing with Writers of the Future was yeah. so important to them, to Dave, Eric Flint, Mike that we're talking mm-hmm. about right now. It's mm-hmm. just, it was such an important part of their life, putting that future of, of the genre there, which is what's a you know, Mr. Mm-hmm, Hubbard's contest mm-hmm. is dedicated to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So getting back on to uh, what I wanted to be able to discuss is as an editor, it's a very, you know, we have a lot, lot of writers here, but as an editor, I want to pick it apart, spend the next, we were already, we're already a third of the way through. This. It's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> um, but what works, what doesn't work, because you, you select obviously for, uh, Galaxy's Edge, which is what I'm mostly interested in talking about mm-hmm. here. Not you got a romance magazine. Yeah, and you've got. No, we'll do the short stories that yeah. sort of uh, in partnership yeah. with writers of the future in a way. Yeah. So, what works? What doesn't work? The whole subject of writing mm-hmm. for a magazine, writing for a market, mm-hmm. how important that is. Yes. It might be a great story, but if it's not for that market, in this case, yes. Galaxy's Edge. Yes. It's not going to go anywhere because it's just not your market. So yes. can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, certainly. I've actually had uh, – so this is one of the interesting things to start off. Uh, Mike Resnick and I had something very similar. And so when he was editing in the magazine, it's one thing that carried through to me. We both, he used to write two modes. He used to write award quality mode and the humor, like a laugh a minute, sort of very conversational, enjoyable, but not the type of story that would win awards. And both of those were in the magazine. You know, he would be able to see. And he had this uncanny ability to look at a story and go, this one will be nominated for awards. It didn't have to be his own, anyone's. He had, He knew what was and he would even say okay I'm writing a story this quality for this market uh because I know that in this market I could go up for awards or I would he was strategic about it now when it comes to magazines he also knew that uh you had to pepper in both types of stories because you know readers can get fatigue if they're reading if they're always reading just the heart-wrenching all heart-wrenching tug your heart out 
of your body stories, well, then you get another one. You're like, ah, this is like, I am so drained. So you had to be able to balance the stories. But saying that there is a somewhat theme that anthologies have. We were very science fiction and fantasy, uh, not really horror. So straight away, authors got to know that don't send us that really creepy horror with a touch of fantasy story. We're not dark fantasy. That's just not our vibe. So part of it is the editors do kind of put an element of it out there, like they do let people know this is the type of stories we want. And it is important that authors read the submission guidelines because they sometimes do have the do and don'ts about genres and about we've seen too many zombie stories or we've seen too many of this type of story. So that is important in tailoring to the market you submit to. It doesn't mean you have to tailor your writing. It just means that the story you write might not be for that market, but it can be for the other 10 markets or just three of the others. And I think that's important. But when you're submitting to multiple markets, say you've got three rejections from one to two, another story got two rejections and you're thinking, but I thought it was a good story. I think it's important that people realise the story might have been sound and 100% wonderful, but it was not right for that market. And as John was saying, that's a big vital part of getting published is having the right story at the right time read by the editor with the right level of quality that the editor is willing to take a chance on you because you become part of the image of the magazine. Right. You, you, it's not just that we're publishing you and you become, oh, you're some of the words. You're actually creating part of what the magazine feels to readers and you become part of, in a way, how the magazine appears and feels as, you know, and when I became editor, I knew that I'm known, uh, I love bittersweet stories. So that doesn't mean depressing stories, but it can have that ending that doesn't always have everything tied up in a, like in a nice little bow, Mm -hmm. but it'll have a consequence type of ending that makes you go, oh, wow. Or, oh no. Or, (laughs) you know, just have that impact is mm-hmm. like and it's usually a character arc impact not so much like and the world blew up it's not a thing impact it's more something that impacted the character so while I obviously like for the writers of the future authors yesterday I gave them that little tip because right. we're doing some anthologies coming forward so now they know that um, they've got a little bit of a heads up but you can actually do your research online because a lot of people will discuss this sort of thing or talk about it. And you get to know, it's very good for you to get to know the markets as well as before you submit. And so you get to learn about the editors and stuff. It's in a way it's, 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 I'm not obviously saying stalk the editors because you know, that's never a good thing, Right. but on social medias and that you follow the magazines you follow the editors because often they have a public profile and you'll get a, and it's important to read the works that they've published. One, because you don't want to have the exact clone of that story. I can get submitted two wonderful stories, but one's an exact clone of one that I published a few months ago. It might have their own flair. It might, but since I've published one of that exact type before, I can't publish another one. It'll look like I'm not 
paying attention as an editor. What's the lead time between submission and, and consideration? So for, for us, we have a turnaround of four months was it, and then a short list of one month after that. And so it, within four months, people would get a response that would know if it's a straight no or if they're shortlisted. Um, and then it would be one month after that. Usually, typically, following that, because, it, again, it's a magazine format, right. often people are published within the six months to one year time. Mm. So what ends up happening is some of the stories, like with authors or readers, some stories really stick with an editor. So I might have one that I just bought but I know it's perfect for like the magazine issue coming out around Christmas because it has, it, it's not a Christmas story, right? But it has a, that sense of wonder, like f- that festive feel is how I would put it. And so you know that I will move it up to put it in because, or I'd move it to the next year, it'd be held a little longer because I know that the issue coming out then would have that right, it's the season type feeling and, right. it, it, you know, people would curl up with like a hot drink and a blanket and it's a good winter story, you know, that type of thing. So there's a lot of that consideration when you, it comes into when you're piecing the issues together too. And you find, uh, well, at least I find, yeah. there's an unconscious theme that gets created often throughout the, the issues. Um, so completely different stories, sci-fi or fantasy, but you might have uh, a theme of people, you know, like starting again after a, a loss or something. And I'll notice a few of the main stories will have that theme just in a different way. And mm-hmm. so that also creates a feel for the magazine. Good. Now, one thing, and I've, I've had this as a repeating mm-hmm. point in multiple podcast interviews, a reject from a magazine, what can that mean? So there's several, and that's why it's good if you – unfortunately, editors can't always give a personalised rejection. There's what's called form rejection and there's a personalised rejection. I tried to give as many personalised as I could and I would sort of put in – even if it's not one that I read but I saw the first reader's little information about why they stopped reading the story or what have you, I would give a little bit of insight. So it has to be constructive criticism. And there is such a thing of responding with this was actually a wonderful story, but it's not, we're not the right market. So that's one of the answers. Mm -hmm. It didn't find its literal right home. It doesn't belong there. Right. Another answer is we've seen some of this before. So again, wonderful story, but I just published another angel story. Yeah. The third thing is always, which is always the case, is there has to be a level. Editors are actually willing to work on a story and actually help an author bring it up to standard if it has a remarkable idea or a remarkable character. If it speaks to the editor in some way, the structural thing can be fixed the, mm-hmm. or the plot hole. An editor can actually take the time to do that if it really impacts them and hits right, them. Right, right. Unfortunately, what it tells you if there's a form rejection usually is it didn't have that little magic moment to impact enough to be worth spending time on at that particular time by the editor. Now, I'm just going to put a little note on this that 
unfortunately with magazines, you have to respond quick. You only read a few paragraphs. So for an editor to take the time to work on a story with an author, that means that something in the story kept them reading to the end, even if it wasn't perfect. A lot of stories are rejected before the first page is finished. And unfortunately, the biggest thing is you have to nail that first page, get the hook in as an author Mm -hmm. to get past that first hurdle because the rejection time with magazines is a lot quicker. We can't spend the time to consider them more. Good. That makes sense on that because it's people will like, incorrectly assume that the story was bad right. and it has nothing to do with nope. it. It's a perfectly good story. It's just those reasons you yep. you gave. Yeah, and a big thing as well is you might have, say, 90% of the story was amazing, but guess what? Your first opening paragraphs were not. Some authors get into their stride when they're writing is how I put it. So, you know, the first few steps are a little unsteady, but then they really get into it they're going to have more of a problem selling to a magazine because we only read the first few paragraphs to decide if it's worth seeing the rest of the stride. And that can be a big thing. So it can be an amazing story that we never read because the first few paragraphs didn't Didn't hook you. Didn't hook us, yes. Good. All right. So listen, people, that is has nothing to do with automatically, you know, pulling out your whip and starting, you know, over your left <laughs> right? or right shoulder, <laughs> whacking away. Yeah. There's a way it gets put. Um, it, a lot of the time editors will say, don't start, um, like, with information about the world, backstory. Start in the middle of the scene. You start, so, again, it doesn't mean you have to have guns out and blazing, but you start in the middle of the action. So it feels like when you're starting to read, that you're actually falling into the story immediately. And that's the hook element. Whether it's a character discovering something or hearing something or having some kind of trigger, not gun, trigger moment (laughs) where it propels them into the plot of the story, you want to feel like you're falling with them into the story. And so that's important. There's one thing that I didn't mention yesterday in the workshop just because of time constraints. But um, there's such a thing as earning your exposition. So established authors, because we know they've got a big reputation, they've put out amazing works and things like that, they can get away with starting a story with a little bit of exposition, which is like description and all of this. And because we know from their reputation they've got they've got the goods to back it up. They've, right. When you read on, you'll get into the good juicy bits, you know. Right. Now, with new authors, it, you have to earn your exposition. If you're starting off with like a description on something, editors are yawn and like, you, no, because we, we don't know what you've got. All we're seeing is you're just describing something. We're not, it's, it's a thing of show, not tell. And so you need to be showing from your first page. You need to show what's happening, not tell what's happening and that's a big thing in the especially in the short market in that first page and so unfortunately a more established author can get away with having a slightly less quality story Mm -hmm. if, if because they've got the reputation and and that behind them 
and the promise that they'll deliver. Deliver, yeah. And new authors don't have that. You have to sell it in the first page. Right. Sometimes I've seen Jody, the coordinating judge for mm-hmm. Rise of the Future, she'll go through it. Okay, so being page three or four, it's okay, good. This is where your story begins. Because mm-hmm. you just. I've done this. Yeah. Exactly right. No. You know, so because you have to be there where something's going to grab them. So that's in the middle of the action. You can go back and fill it in more later, but you've got to get the person and hook them to. Because you're talking short fiction. We're not yes. talking novels. This is short yeah, fiction. Short fiction. Okay. Now, what about the value of short fiction to getting discovered or making your break as an author? Is that still a, a good thing? It actually is still a good thing. It's interesting because uh, short fiction had, in a way, uh, more of a, I suppose, a name to it when it, in the earlier years, short fiction was like seen as, oh, it's quite a big thing. But now novels have taken over in the level, in the, oh, this is prestigious to have the big novel contract or whatever. Right. However, there's actually more short fiction markets now than there was before the digital age. Now, uh, that saturation is not always good when it's not a good market, obviously. Right. But in general, there's a lot of quality markets and a lot of the original markets have converted over so they also have the digital platforms and that. So, you know, the Asimovs, the analogs, they've come along with the ride. And so one of the things um, with short fiction, when it comes to getting your name out there and discoverability, I've actually told a lot of, I've actually talked just, I mentored an author last week. He's had four novels that he's been put in to agents, trying to get an agent first so he can then submit mm-hmm. to publishers. And he has what I call writer fatigue. He's, you know, he's exhausted waiting. Right. Waiting can be exhausting. Like he's done the work. Right. Now he's waiting. And he says, I just feel like I'm not getting anywhere. Part of the biggest the problem was he's not discoverable. The other part is he's not networking in the field. He doesn't feel like he has buddies. He doesn't because he doesn't know anyone. So I told him networking is important. Um, get to know other authors, editors, um, social media, and that. And that's the first step of he won't feel as alone. But I advised him, and this is the point of the answer is I said, try your hand at short fiction. If anything, it'll just hone your skills mm-hmm. because you have to be able to tell a story in a lot shorter word spans, but it right. still has to have everything a story needs, the beginning, the middle, the end, the character arc, you know, a resolution or a consequence. You just have to do it at a more condensed rate. The thing with short stories and how they're important to careers is if while you're waiting for the novel sale, even if that's what your aim is, I want to be a novel writer, you can actually be in in the notice of the editors of novelists, uh, you know, of novels. You can actually get the notice and everything earlier if you start in short fiction. So not only do you hone your skills, but you have pieces of fiction you can submit regularly elsewhere because they're short. You can even take a break for your novel, write a short story when you're having fatigue with your novel, submit it out there, and when you start getting noticed or published, Believe me, the or, the editors of the novels, because they love science fiction and fantasy, they read the short stuff too. And I've known multiple authors that started in short fiction that became friends and noticed by editors of publishing companies that do novels 
and they get noticed beforehand. Yeah. And it means that when they're submitting their novel, if that editor sees it on their desk, they're like, oh, my God, I loved that novelette that they sold to Asimov's. Like, oh, I wonder if they're novels. Like, great. Also, I do think short fiction helps in career credibility when you're going for an agent. If you can say I've won a Writers of the Future yeah. award at the very start of your career or got multiple silver mentions and so forth and you've got that in your cover letter to either an agent or an editor, it gives you credentials from the start that you can help build in your career. So, yeah, I think it's quite important. That's good. Now, with... Um Short fiction, I've seen some people, I've got a novel, if I just take out a chapter, because Pat Rothfuss did this with his, with his book, but you can't just take a chapter and tack on a beginning and end and say, here's a short story. There's, there's a lot of problems with that. Let's talk about adverbs. <laughs> oh, my gosh, adverbs. So even I have to go through my own uh, own work and kill, like kill, search. Some you can search find and kill. Right. Um, but there is such a thing as trimming or expanding manuscripts. It usually works the other way around. So not from having a long piece and then trying to excise basically like the heart of the piece and, yeah. oh, this is like a short story encapsulated. This is the bit that's so important. Everyone will love reading this and go, wow. It usually works the other way around actually where a short fiction, usually a novella, gets expanded into a novel and most of the time the novella still is better than the novel because the novella was the length that story needed. Needed to be. Right? Yeah. And then the novel was like adding in a little bit of adverbing <laughs> and expanding uh, word usage. So one of the things that I have found when I do uh, is when I get novelettes, I love a good novelette. I write a, also to a good novelette length. But I find sometimes novelettes a padding of short stories. And believe it or not, search, find, kill, adverbs, things like that, you do trim up a story and then it means that the story is the length it should have been. So, yes, um, you can excise something out of a novel. It was such a super exciting adventure that they went on oh, that was like no. when the, the and, but, bubbling, fast-running, clear brook. Right. So saying this, this is what's uh, uh, something that's actually come in an interview that I just did. I was talking to Daniel Abrahams. He's one of the authors of The Expanse. Mm -hmm. I was interviewing him um, for the magazine. And he actually had, he went to Clarion West, again, another writer's, you know, conference, yeah. conference. And one of the, they had to write, like the Writers of the Future does this, where you have a prompt where you have to write a story in a very short amount of time. Right. Clarion West does the same thing. And he had to write a short story within a short interval. And Connie Willis said, write a story that starts, again, starting in the middle of the moment where someone, the character gets hit on the head. That's the, the starting moment, write this short story. And so that was the prompt he was given and he wrote a short story. That short story ended up being published, I believe, in Asimov's uh, from that workshop prompt. Yeah. And then when he was submitting novels, he had fully written out novels, by the way, completely, and he was submitting novels. And it was Shauna McCarthy, who's she used to do Realms of Fantasy to edit Realms of Fantasy. She um, 
she said, okay, that's great, but do you have actual novels that are sellable, like good novels, <laughs> right? And it's like, oh, crap. Well, and he said, I actually have this short story that could be expanded into a novel. She's like, okay, that's your next that's your next task. That's what, and that became the his first novel, and it's a, a a series of books. And so that was how his career. Remember how we said earlier that your career can have the weirdest sort of start yeah. patterns. Uh, his and first novel came out of a workshop, essentially, in a roundabout way. And so, I as I said, you can tell from my answer. I don't think it goes as well the other way, cutting right. out something from a big novel and, if, you know, putting a start and an end on it because it it was meant to be a part. It wasn't meant to be the whole. Right. So I think it, it would Pat be Rose tricky. Was, he was obviously, his worked. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there is always exceptions to a rule. Yeah. Always. This is a chapter to be titled a short story, The Road to Levenshire, which is just a piece of... His first of his yep. Brave Kings, you know, but um, or the King Killer trilogy, mm-hmm. soon to be trilogy, eventually to be trilogy. Yeah, yeah, right. At some point, and, and a, another thing that's interesting to note, and authors do do this, is, and in fact, an author I just edited has done this, uh, is some people will also write a short story in the world of their novel. So it's like a little side quest. Think of it like it might have one of the lead characters or it might be a story from like before they were the main characters, like in their past, Mm -hmm. before they become the lead. This is like their teenage years or something. And it's a short story. And if they can sell that, and it stands alone in itself, that's important. It has to be a short story that stands by itself. If they can sell that to like fantasy and science fiction magazine or Asimov's, when they're pitching still – going through the years of pitching the novel, they can say, hey, the first story of this world sold to Asimov's and, you know, readers were really as receptive. You know, Sheila Williams brought it. This was wonderful. And so short fiction can also give you a, like a foot, a little foot in the door uh, for credibility for your novel length. Yeah, and one thing too can be done, even if you're not going traditional, yes. you're going to go independent, that short story can be the good lead magnet. Yes. That will get somebody like, wow, I like this guy. Yeah. What else? And then use that to get them interested in yes. your novel. Yes. And then you've, there yeah, you go. Yeah, and you're not investing a whole novel length. as in, um, in business, it's called a loss leader. Right. Right. And so it's the little carrot you dangle for free or put, make more accessible. So if you sell it, obviously, traditionally, it's then in one of the magazines or so forth. But it that's the bit that everyone can sort of get a bite size of what you do. Right. And go, oh, this is what this author can offer. Um, Scott Card's Ender's Game. Yes. It was originally a novelette. Right. At a lunch at a convention, and I think it was in Texas. I was just, I was just having lunch with Tom Doherty a few weeks ago in New York. He said he met with, with um, uh, Scott, mm-hmm. and uh, Scott said, I think it'd be much better if I turned this into a, a novel. Yeah. And Tom said, okay. Sounds good. Go for that. So he turned to a novel, and that's Ender's Game, which was yeah. really kicked off his career. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it's, I just, I fi- and again, you gave an example of expanding out the other way. Yeah. A shorter piece that becomes longer. Yeah. I, it obviously can go the other way. But I, all of these examples we've given are examples of how the short fiction field can really capture 
obviously readers' attentions, mm -hmm. but the editors in the field as well. Right. It that's really does with, give with you Pat Rothfuss. It exactly. Was an so that story right. said, "I want to, I want to take you." Yep, yep. And one of the things like George Martin does while he's finishing his half a million word novel is he's put out some of the novellas and the the short pieces along the way. It's like little, I suppose, thank you nuggets for the reader. Right. But I find that short fiction also has an impact in when you're you don't have when the reader doesn't have time to read a novel in their life they can get a magazine or an, one of your anthologies you know mm -hmm. and they can read two or three a night or you know and so it, it it's a, it's a field that offers a lot to readers as well as to the writers yeah, a lot of people are doing commutes either on right, yeah, trains. exactly. Um, it makes it really easy to get the full arc of a story. Yes, in a short period of time, and and it gives uh, it's in a way it's kind of like with this day and age. I think it was this sort of thing is more important now. Um, social media, the you know, mm -hmm. so much on the web. You can so easily now read a short story and then just Google that author or. Yeah. Oh, let's see if they have others in this series. Or go straight to so, Amazon, and see what there is, and just exactly, yeah, exactly. So, I think um, the anthology format and the magazine format is really good for interactivity and uh, in a the world that's much busier now than it used to be. Mm -hmm. In just still having that chance to take an hour and read and get the satisfaction and the pleasure out of a good story arc. Okay. Good. Now. As an editor, as you are rapidly becoming that go-to editor, <laughs> what are some of your, what are some tips or some advice that you've got to an author on submitting something to an editor? What, what's a turn on and a turn off for you as an editor for somebody trying to approach you, to pitch you, to to corner you, to find you in the bathroom stall and slide it under the door? And okay, that's happened to Beth Meacham. I know. That's right. why I said that. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So I actually have been helping um, counsel some new authors and that. And there was actually uh, a new author that I'm helping at the moment, like just giving advice and things like that. I don't have time to read his manuscript and things like that, but he was actually recommended to me by someone else I know because he's hit the wall. Like, and... So if people know the schedule I've had, I've had so many deadlines, all the, the books that we were talking about that I made in the magazine, the last magazine that we've done is a double issue, so it was extra long. And so I actually told him I can't give you like the pep talk um, for like at least a couple of weeks. You know, ping me in two weeks and we'll schedule a time. And when that fell and I had to tell him I'm sorry, I can't schedule it at least until later in the week. I'm not sure when, but I have these urgent deadlines. This happened, this happened, this happened. And, you know, we'll touch base again. Well, his, what he shouldn't have done, which he did, is he sent a message like every day, like, when can we talk? I'm like desperate. I just like need advice. Now, a big, there's two things. One, hounding, not a good thing. No, right. don't hound. Two, I know this is a fine line. You have to come across not as desperate. Desperate 
even though unintentionally gives an impression that your work might not yet be up to standard because you're desperate at, at you know, it's like you're reaching for something that might uh, so desperately that is that desperation in your work is, right. you know, you have to come across like an undiscovered gem. So you know your worth, you know that your your book is worth time. But not arrogant. But not arrogant. Oh, no, it's a no ego, right? Yeah. Because you haven't earned an ego yet. And so there's a really fine line you have to come across. Basically, what a lot of people don't realize when they're submitting books is they're also submitting themselves. They're also selling themselves. And part of it is unfortunately uh, an evolution in publishing industry that a lot of editors will now look at social media Mm -hmm. and see if they've got a presence. Like if they think the person will help promote their own book and also will look good doing it and, oh, they've look, they've got thousands of people on this platform and they've got this brand already created around themselves in a way. Like they can see the brand even though they haven't sold the book yet. They can see the potential for the author to have a brand they're more likely to buy that book than the equally good book from the author that sounds desperate and is like, but please love me, you know? Mm -hmm. And I obviously feel compelled to help the please love me people, but practically they're not the best to buy from, you know? And so a big thing is about how you present yourself. Um, and so a lot of what I've been telling this, this young man, and he's a lovely young man, I've been telling, okay, so it was fine that you did this with me, but don't do this with others. <laughs> like I'm giving him the do not list, right? right? And then in the, our talk, because we did have the hour-long talk, I gave them the he's to-do list. Now, one of the biggest advices I had was uh is network with your peers, not necessarily because you think, oh, but how does that help with my manuscript? It actually does a lot more. So if you have friends with the peers in the field, and I mean well-known authors all the way down, mm-hmm. and I even told this author, because he's not friends with any of them, that the really big names might reject you if you send them a friend request because they don't see mutual friends. So I basically gave him a list of like week one friend these people, week two, so he can start getting mutual friends in the field. Um, where it helps is all of these authors that I know post about submitting themselves and the established names will even post their stories of how their book was rejected 10 times and their manuscript was looked over and they'll equally come onto others' pages when a new author goes, I just got rejected 10 times, they'll come and they'll be like, it happened to us too, you know, you Mm -hmm. can do it. So, but... A big thing is, is I said to him, you have to analyze how these authors do social media, how they present themselves. And so I said to, I said to him, the biggest don't is basically you have to be passionate about your book, not desperate. Seeing passion is actually good for a publisher. We want to know that you will push this book as much as we will push this book. You will drag that boulder to the top of the hill. Right. We want that. We want passion. Right. We don't want to feel like we're holding someone's hand uh, and desperation. And so then when it comes to submitting, because the the goal of this is to submit, uh, 
you have to look at the professional channels. Some people won't accept unagented books. And unfortunately, then your goal is, okay, how do I get an agent and go down that path? Don't follow them into the bathroom stall and shove (laughs) a manuscript under the bathroom stall just because you think, well, at least she's got it in her hands now. Well, then it also ended in the bin five minutes later because that's not the way you do it. So, yeah, it's, it's a fine line between being passionate and engaging and presenting like you can be a brand around your book yeah, and being desperate and sounding like, uh, you know, I want to get published at all costs, but it doesn't mean my book is good. That's the way it comes across. Right. So we want to see your talent in your bearing. Good. All right. So the last little bit on this, on this podcast, here we are this week at Rise of Future Week. You've spoken to... Um, this this year's winners, this group of winners, I'd like to discuss from your perspective. I mean, you found out about through Mike Resnick when mm-hmm. he was a judge, and so I can't really call you an outsider. But as, as <laughs> no, a non- I get why you're saying it. Yeah, yeah but as a non-judge as person, a non-judge, yeah, can you just give me your take on this contest and why it's important for someone to enter the contest and the value it can be for a career start, mm-hmm. you know, yep. whether you win or not. Yeah. I see a press release a week usually with someone saying, I won honorable mention as they're getting their first novel published. Exactly. Exactly. I say for first off, creating your writer family, writer community starting out is important. So the biggest thing is you are going to get rejections. You are going to feel like you're slogging through a mine all by yourself, um, just trying to find the gem that's buried in the wall in the background. And then you want everyone to see that gem and to be discovered and become the next best thing. All of us want that when, you know, it's it's a career goal. You want to be the the creme little you, you, yeah. you don't want to be uh, just still submitting after 10 years. So a big thing is finding your people. And Writers of the Future is very good at uh, bringing together, obviously, all the, the winners and having a whole workshop. So they've got to go through this amazing but, in a way, grueling <laughs> workshop for a week. I've seen the schedule. They do a lot and they have to – I when I saw that they have to do a story, I was like, when do they have time to write that story? From 2 o'clock Monday to 2 o'clock Tuesday. Right? So, But they've still got all the events and the workshop things that they have to attend and yeah. they're still uh, talking to the – you know, all the guest speakers and the the judges when they can and trying to experience as much as they can of this. So the great thing about – this contest as an outsider looking in is I can see the careers starting, like the networking element, so which is important. Now, where it extrapolates out is, perfect example, my magazine Galaxy's Edge. I have brought numerous stories from not just the winners, but people that have submitted to the contest. I automatically know there's a level of, a caliber level of quality when I see even a silver winning mm-hmm. mention. Um, and so I think that it does add an early on credential that helps uh, in sort of validating that you've got, you can do quality work very early on. So that does help in a career expanding out. And as you said, you do see like novelists say, and my first short story was winner of volume, you know, 36. And even half your judges were winners at a certain Mm -hmm. stage. Um, And the reason why they're judges is not because they won their short story originally. It's because they now have multiple award published books and they're famous authors now. 
So that that means they're now qualified to become a judge. But they also started in the competition. And so I do think it's vital at the start of a career to have a credential like this. And Writers of the Future, in a way, gives the first, like, pip on the on the lapel or something of I've gone through this and I've achieved this and, you know, they start their first steps into a career. Good. Now, this was originally started in 1983 by Ellen Hubbard. We talked earlier on another interview Mm -hmm. that we did just on how prolific he was and he was one of the major names of of, um, pulp fiction in the 30s and 40s. And you originally introduced him through Mike Resnick. Can you tell that? That's a cool story. Okay. So originally um, after, and you know how obviously how I met Mike now, so we've Mm -hmm. heard that at the start, so I don't have to rehash that. But one of the things he did when I was about to come to the first Worldcon and things like that uh, is he knows, especially from Australia, I didn't read all of the same books. He also knows that I'm younger. So I'm almost pretty much the age of this contest, the Writers of the Future contest. I'm a little older than it. And so he didn't know how widely read I was from anything before I was born. So he actually, again, as we've established, he had my address. He could send me books. He sent me a big box of all the pulp classics, the older books. Um, So Best, uh, you know, Frederick Pohl, Everyone, Siamak, Williams, yes, and uh, obviously L. Ron Hubbard. And so I first read all of these titles for the first time. And as you know, novels were shorter then. Uh, So I could like inhale them almost um, because, and then we're like, there's the next one. And because he sent the often the original paperbacks, you can fit a lot in the box. Like I think I was sent like 60 books. And and with the note of to be well read or, you know, <laughs> here's, here's your basically list of uh, what to read. And so that's honestly the first way I discovered L. Ron Hubbard. And we were discussing in the interview. Um, typewriter it, in the Sky. Yeah, Typewriter in the Sky. That, that, and I do definitely uh, remember even the covers like now it's coming to me, the covers of these books. And, you know, the smell. Yeah. The old books, the smell, yeah. and it's all part of the experience. Like I have to say, when he first sent me this box, um, I was like, oh, it's literally like in a way antiques sitting in the box. It was all the original publications. I loved also seeing how the cover art was done and everything. And I think at the time that Al Ron Hubbard and that was starting to write is right when our world was starting to expand. It was before the internet, though. Right. So where you expanded first and sort of explored more was in your mind. And so a lot of future exploration, in a way, and finding out what could be was done on the page and by authors. And as we know, there's a big, long track record of authors in science fiction saying, oh, wouldn't it be great if we have this and then it actually gets created? Like in our time, these things are... Yeah, that's what Ellen Hubbard said in the um, introduction to Battlefield Earth, that science fiction is the herald of possibility. Yes, so that's science a beautiful fiction, quote. Yeah, so yeah. the author conceives it. And, but back at the time when he was... I have this one photo of him at um, the first Torcon mm-hmm. in 1940 or 42. No, he was there, but he was there with the other people he was with there were scientists. They were mm-hmm. the rocket scientists. Well, yeah. You know, they're rocket scientists by day and, and night. Right. They were, you know, science fiction writers. And when we went to 
one of our Rise of Future Awards events that we did at Cape Kennedy in Florida, mm-hmm. Jack Williamson was there. And I mean, he'd been writing since 1920-something or another about going to the, into space, going to the moon, but he'd never seen a, a rocket launch. So he, at that point, he was in his 80s. Aww. And um, he was like a little kid. Yeah. We were there, and we were the closest civilians to Cape Kennedy and watched, mm-hmm. and watched the uh, yeah. shuttle launch. And he was there was like, <gasps> you see these all these judges have been writing science fiction about going into space for decades and seeing this thing, some for the first time. Mm-hmm. They were just like little kids seeing yeah. it. This, but oh, this yeah. is what they were They envisioned, but never thought they would actually see because it yeah. was in the future. Yeah. Uh, one of my treasured books that I have is the last book of his that he published to come out. Jack Williamson? Yes. Yeah. He had uh, an Eastern Press edition of it, which, as you know, is they can be signed. Right. And it was a signed Eastern Press um, book. And it was the last copy of it. So it was 900 out of 900 was the one that I have. And it was dedicated, of all things, to Mike Resnick and other some other judges that are, as well as other authors. Because he was one of so, the first judges. Exactly. And so he um, was basically thanking because within that last year there was like a tribute panel done to him while he was alive, which is actually a wonderful yeah. thing. It's wonderful when they actually think to do it before someone's passed. And there was this wonderful tribute panel to him and his career. And um, so when he was finalising his last book, he dedicated it to the people that was on that panel, the authors, all these lovely big names too. Yeah. And so I have that last copy that he signed of his last book, an Eastern Press edition. It's one of the things well, I treasure. Great. Yeah. That's great. Six degrees of separation in this field is amazing. Yeah. Like I, I, we've talked about this in previous interview. I met you through the judges mm-hmm. and what the podcast people don't know is I basically was invited as plus ones because I'm friends with all the judges. So often like. Rob Sawyer was. Yeah. if And especially um, partly it's a pay it forward thing where if a, a bigger a, author is at an event but they've got one of their protégés or one of the that sort of thing there or friends, they're, you know, plus one invites get extended right. out, you know. And um, but it must have been funny from your side and that because I just kept turning up at random I know. <laughs> okay, you're, you're, so. you're, you're Mike's guest, okay. <laughs> Mike and Carol have their daughter. Okay, good. And here's yeah. Rob Sawyer. Carolyn wasn't there, so he's bringing Leslie. Yeah, and then I, I went Who with someone else. Yeah, I went with someone else at one point too. Um, I remember it was one of the Bain, like, yeah. and so it might have been Eric Flint. I'm not sure, but Maybe he it was. happened several times, but yeah. yeah. Um, and, yeah, so. Who is that woman? Yeah. Who is that woman? Who's that random redhead Australian, yeah. <laughs> Um, and of course, in the background, I've been creating my career path, uh-huh. obviously along the way. So it's interesting that we were talking about at the start how people, their careers develop in quite unusual ways. Mm-hmm. And while we can give advice like this whole uh, podcast, there's no one true path in publishing. And even how I'm sitting here at Writers of the Future basically came out of me being invited to dinners. Um, obviously, I. You know, I've been invited here because of certain credentials, what I can talk on. Right. But you wouldn't have known that me at that about, time. Yeah. You know. No, that's good. I mean, one thing I, I do feel, and we got to wrap this up because we're now over our hour, is community is really important. No matter oh, yeah. what, in science fiction and fantasy, that world, community is so important. Rise Future Forum has won awards the last three years because it's such a safe forum to participate in and to, and to meet 
your family because mm-hmm. we're totally here to, to help a, 100%. you. 100%. And even speaking to what we just said, at one of those dinners, you were saying I would love a new judge and I suggested Jody Lynn Nye, who is now your coordinating judge. That's right. Judge. And so, as I said, that was through networking. That was through me being a plus one at a dinner. And by that time, we'd known each other for sure. a couple of years, yeah. a few years. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, she was one of the suggestions I made that it was. And it worked now, out perfectly. She's a yeah. total sweetheart. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Well, good. So now for someone, we can do for yourself or for your magazine, how can somebody find out more about you and about your magazine? So there's or this a, magazine at least we're yes. talking about yes yes so the magazine website and we're converting to an anthology series but we'll still have just as many sort of slots to sell to we'll still have a submissions page and all of this but it's galaxiesedge.com simple as that and Ooh. it has everything it has um, the current issue on the main page it'll have the about us the history and it'll also have the submissions page and we're always going to have a submission portal open at certain times of the year. Um, accepting stories, wanting new stories. We mm-hmm. love getting new authors. It's the same thing with Writers of the Future. I love seeing authors from that random country that we've never had before and I'm like, yeah. oh, they submitted a story to us. I hope it's a good story, you yeah. know. And so, yeah, on Writers of the uh, – sorry, on galaxiesedge.com, it'll have everything you need to access and on there it'll have the link to go to the submissions page and so forth. It'll also have updates. Good. And for me, uh, leslierobin.com, L-E-Z-L-I-R-O-B-Y-N. I'm actually slightly updating my website now, but you can still go to it. And I actually have pages that show me as the editor. And so you can see the works that I've edited and then pages that show my work as an author. Um, And my life on the beach with my dog. So you get a taste of uh, the me behind the words. Exactly, and the and the true um, mermaid that you are. Yes, yes, yes. With the unruly hair that we had to keep taming for the interview. Exactly, yes. exactly. <laughs> well, thank you, Leslie, and thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K. Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We're especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Leslie. You're welcome. Thank you.